We're in a second in a series in the book of Malachi. We're doing a short series. The passage this morning is the longest one we'll try to tackle. Uh, even as I was working with it, I decided there are probably three sermons in here, uh, but I'm going to try to preach one of them. And, uh, so, but you may say, oh, you could have gone down here. You really could have gone. I know. Uh, I got two more sermons I could do out of here, but we're going to do one. And this morning, the one that uh, I just felt was, was on my heart was the, the heart of worship is where God is coming. We said there are six disputations, six dialogues that, that God has with his people, question and answer, that shape uh, this book. This is the second one, and he has a conversation with the priests, with the leaders of Israel. So it's a little bit longer. I'm going to go ahead and read it here then, starting in chapter, Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6. We're going to go through chapter 2, verse 9. Hear then the word of God. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious with us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were among you. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun until its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered in my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. And yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces and the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that 
I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi might stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The Word of God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to you. We come. And we long to hear you speak for your word to come into our hearts and our lives with power. And so this morning, will you shape our hearts and our minds by the truth of what is here, that you would call us to repentance and to the very heart of worship, that we too may honor your name as you are worthy to be honored. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a long conversation with the priests, where he comes after them, right? The first commandment that we know, there are ten commandments. The first commandment is to honor God as God, as the Lord God. The fifth commandment is to honor our fathers. God is the preeminent Father. In verse 6, he says, children, honor their father, and servants honor their masters, right? A son honors his father, a servant his masters. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. God wants to know where is the honor that he's due, right? If we've read this passage, he outlines the ways in which they have dumbed down the worship and have polluted it and have corrupted it. Earthly fathers and earthly masters deserve to receive honor. We believe that. It's one of the commandments. We want our children to respect us, to obey us for their own good and out of love. But there is an honor that is due. There's a respect that is due. It's true in terms of government and offices and all the places that we do uh, offer that kind of deference to position. But if earthly fathers and masters deserve this kind of honor, And infinitely, God desires and deserves infinitely more honor. He is the uncaused cause. He is the uncreated creator. He is the self-existing, infinite, eternal God. The highest of heavens, it says, cannot contain him. He is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is filled with His glory. He is the Most High God who sits enthroned, it says, over the circle of the earth and reigns over all that has been made. And if our earthly fathers and masters are worthy of love and honor, of obedience, 
And he says, why do you treat me as less than them? Why do you give more honor to your regional Persian governors than you do to your God? Jesus asks a similar question. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I tell you? He goes on to say that that's like building on sand. To say Lord, Lord, to call him God, to say that as God then he deserves honor, he deserves obedience, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say, and then not live out the truth of those words. It's disastrous. That passage goes on to say it's like building on sand. And if you build your house on sand, when the rains come, when the flood comes, he says your house is destroyed. Right? To build on a rock is to hear these words and put them into practice. To call him Lord, Lord, and then obey him and serve him and honor him. But it's disastrous to call him Lord and then not do what he says. It's disastrous. In Malachi, in many ways, this whole passage is an exposition of this truth, calling God Lord and Master, but not obeying him. And it's disastrous in the life of Israel, in the ministry of the priesthood. Eight times throughout this passage, he is called, or calls himself, the Lord of hosts. It's a a big name, that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of of armies, the Lord who is master and king over, over uh, the vast armies of heaven. It's a title that points to his infinite power and authority, the Lord of all hosts who reigns over the world. And this Lord of hosts, he says in verse 6, is calling out his priests. He says, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. They despise his name by offering lame worship. Literally lame. Lame and sick. And he says it's a despising of his name to offer him less. You wouldn't even offer that to your local governors, to a Persian governor. See how the Persian governor will take it when you give him the lame and your leftovers and that which is not worth anything. And see how he favors you, how he accepts it, how he would respond to you. It's strong language in here. He has said, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and and hear it. It's a passage about God's love. In verse 2, it starts out, he says, I have loved you. And the rest of the text says, the way, how have I loved you? I I have chosen you, right? I've made you my people. I have adopted you to myself. And so he is saying here in the strongest language, I have loved you, I have chose you, but you have despised me. You defy me. You disobey me. You dishonor me. The priest's role, as we see throughout the text, is to teach the law to God's people. This comes out as you get into chapter 2. He said <clears throat> that in the, in the true covenant with Levi, you know, the lips of the priest should guard knowledge He should teach the law. People should come for instruction. The role of the priest was to to inform the people of God, to teach the people of God the law of God. And then their role was to enforce that law. They, They were the ones who made sure that morally and spiritually the people kept the law of God. And then they were to lead God's people in worship. And they failed in every one of these. Now, the application to pastors here is fairly obvious. 
There's an overlap in these roles in terms of teaching, in terms of as, a, as an eldership, enforcing that teaching morally and spiritually in the lives of God's people, in the life of a church. Uh, there's church discipline, and so we, we, in a sense, teach God's word. There is the enforcement of the law, so to speak. There is that uh, leading of worship. So there's an overlap here, and so that even though there's an overlap and there is an obvious application, some of you may be thinking, you pastors should be listening up, right? That, that this is, has a, a special application to us, and it does. It says in the New Testament that those who presume to teach will be judged more strictly. And there, there is a role of accountability uh, for leadership. But I want to say this, a couple things. One, there is no priesthood in the New Testament. There, the, the priesthood dies with the Old Testament. In Hebrews 10.10, it says that the offering of the body of Jesus Christ was once for all. There's no more temple, there is no more priesthood, there are no more sacrifices. The New Testament emphasizes a priesthood of all believers. The sense in which we are, we are all, this is a Reformation emphasis as well. Moving away from the Catholic Church into Protestantism was this whole uh, rejection of the idea of a New Testament priesthood. And that there is instead in the New Testament emphasis on the priesthood of all believers. For instance, 1 Peter 2.5 says this, You yourselves, that is the church, you Christians, all of you together, you like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, the temple. You're the new temple, Paul says elsewhere. Don't you know that you are the temple and the Holy Spirit lives in you? And he says that each of you are like a stone in that and all of you together make a spiritual edifice. All of you together when we gather for worship are like the temple where worship takes place. And he says that you are being built up into this spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so there's this emphasis that all of us then are priests. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to our God. That's what we're doing this morning. It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge him. This is the priesthood of all believers, offering continually a sacrifice of praise to God. Romans 12.1 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He says, you're the one who presents, like the priest, but what you present is not a a dead sacrifice, but yourself. I say all this is to to suck you into this, that this passage is speaking to all of us about our worship. It speaks to all of us about our worship. There's a word here for us to hear about obedience and about the genuineness and the sincerity of our worship, the honoring of his name. After God's assertion here that they have despised him, the people respond in, Verse 6, and they ask, how have we despised your name? What have we done? How do we do that? So the Lord answers, and that's what you have in most of the rest of the text, but the Lord answers, and what do we see? What, What were the priests doing? What were the people doing that was wrong, that was so offensive to God? 
And the answer in, in a fundamental sense is, is this, that they are, among other things, they are violating a fundamental Old Testament law of worship. And what is that central thing? It's the, the basic idea is that everything in the universe and everything in this world and everything in your life and everything in your house and everything in your possession, but everything belongs to God, that it's all actually his and that he is entitled to the first and the best of it. So we see it in the Old Testament that the first and the best of whatever God has given to us, we offer back in worship. And that's what's not happening We'll see this applied in chapter 3 because I think it's one of those fascinating passages, and we'll, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, where he accuses the people of robbing God. Is, is it such a thing? But how have we robbed you? And he's going to tell them, by withholding that which is mine. You're robbing me. And that is the essence of what is here. There is that which belongs to him, the first and the best, the unblemished, to be offered back to him in worship because he is worthy of it. And so that first and best, the first fruits, the cream of the crop offered. See, when God's law, this particular law and all of his laws, when they are honored and obeyed, it's an expression of love and honor to him. It's not just about the law. They are simply an expression of the love and the honor that we hold to him that he himself deserves. And so when the law is disobeyed, when offerings are not worthy of him, it is insulting to him. By offering less, treating him as less, he says, you despise me. Giving me your leftovers, loving yourself first, is to despise me. And so presenting lame offerings, as we said, you can't even do that with your governor. See how the Persians would take to that. And so at the heart of their worship is this lack of sincerity. These people draw near to me with their lips, but their sacrifices, their good stuff is far from me. Right? Their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are not in where they should be in responding in worship. At the heart of the worship, their lack of sincerity is revealed in the poor quality of their offerings. Right? They dishonor him. And so we see this running through the whole text in verse 7. He says, you're giving me uh, polluted offering, polluted food. In verse 8, he says, you're giving me, you offer blind animals and sacrifices. Isn't this evil? And Further on, he says, when those that, are, that you offer are lame and they're sick, isn't this evil? In verse 12, it says, you are profaning my name. In verse 13, he says, it is by violence that you offer lame and weak. And that don't know if that means that they're stealing other people's lame and see, so that they can offer it. They don't want to give, they have good stuff. They, what violence is in there, but they continue to dishonestly approach the whole process of worship with leftovers. Sacrifice without sacrifice. Sacrifice that doesn't cost them anything. Where they keep the best for themselves and for the market and the things that, that aren't of value. 
They offer a sacrifice that has no value. It's interesting, there's a story to this effect in David's life. And when he comes to give an offering and he requests an animal from someone, he wants to buy the animal, and they try to give it to him. And they say, oh, just take it and offer it. So here David would offer somebody else's animal that he got for free because he's a king, and they gave it to him. And David's response to all of this is, I will buy it from you for a price because I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. I will not offer that which cost me nothing. The Old Testament requirement was for purity. In Exodus 12.5, we get an example. It runs through all of the Mosaic law describing worship, but your, but your lamb shall be without blemish because he is worthy of your best. And so in verse 10, he says he won't accept the sacrifice, that, that they're not acceptable, that he doesn't need their sacrifice. It's interesting in that passage that most of us know where it says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and the context of that is I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your animals. You're not providing for me. I don't need you to feed me. It's not like I don't have my own cattle if I need them. Right? So he's saying, I don't need your worship. I don't have to accept this. It's no loss to me. It is actually a loss to us in our approach to God. And so we see throughout the passage really what is going on here in the language. And this is a sermon that one I'm not going to preach, so I'm just going to tell you, <clears throat> is that running through this, this passage is really a clear reversal of the Aaronic blessing. Right? And that, the Aaronic blessing is a blessing that the priest would pronounce over the people week by week, day by day. Right? The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you and the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. It's one that we use here. And running through this passage, there's a clear reversal of this blessing. This blessing that's familiar to everyone. The priests are the ones saying it. The people hear it all the time. And what God does is he takes a lot of the language from the ironic blessing and he turns it on its head and he uses it to curse Israel's priests. He reverses the blessing on the priests using similar language. The very blessing they say, God uses to curse them. And so in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, not that the Lord bless you, but the Lord will curse you. His face will not shine upon you. We get the rather graphic, in chapter 2, verse 3, the rather graphic image of spreading dung on their faces. So instead of his face shining, and in a sense us, you know, basking in the glow of, of his smile, of his favor, he says, I will spread dung on your face. And not just any dung, but I'm going to take the dung of your worthless sacrifices that dishonored me, and you will be dishonored. He's pretty angry with the priesthood. He reminds them of the theme of the covenant, and this underlies all of it in chapter 2, verses 4 to 9 in particular. He talks about that covenant with Levi, which is the Mosaic covenant. It's in the Mosaic covenant that all of the duties and the, and the, the nature of worship and the, 
the uh, procedures for worship are all outlined within the Mosaic Covenant. Here are the, the commandments. Here, you know, is, is the way, are the laws and the precepts. And then here is that law for worship. Here's who the priests are and what they will do and how the temple will be run and how sacrifices will be given. And it's all in there. Here's the law. You're going to fail to keep that law. So here's the sacrifice, right? Here's the Ten Commandments, you know, but you're going to blow it. Here's the rest of the way those commandments apply. You're not going to do that very well either. So here's some priests who are going to help you because we're going to offer a lot of sacrifices to cover your sin. And it's built into the Mosaic law. And he is saying, this law, you have broken the covenant by disobeying the covenant, the law, and approaching me in ways that I outlawed, that are illegal, they're against the law. And he calls them to repentance. Verse 2, if you will not listen, that sound, it struck me right away. You think of Matthew 18. I don't know, when we church, teach church discipline here, in Matthew 18, Jesus walks through this pattern of it, and he says, if someone sins against you, go to them and tell them. And if he listens to you, great, you've won your brother. But if he will not listen, bring one or two others. Go back, have a conversation again in the presence of these witnesses. And if he will not listen, and it's that if he will not listen that drives discipline forward because if they will listen we call that repentance that they hear and respond and and so here he says to the priests if you will not listen if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name says the lord of hosts i will curse you He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to covenant renewal. I made this covenant. You know this covenant. Hear me. Respond to me. Renew the covenant. Go go back and fulfill your vows and your roles. Obey the law of sacrifice. Do things right. Repent. What we hear in the judgment and curses of God on the failures of the priesthood right here is the beginning of the end of the priesthood. It's the beginning of the end. God has nothing else after this to say to the priests until Jesus shows up, right? Until the new covenant. We said this is the last book in the Old Testament and God goes silent. This is the last thing he has to say to them. Repent. It's a mess. And the next thing is Jesus on the scene. He comes until Jesus comes in person. There is this silence. And Jesus tells a woman at the well, if you remember, he's talking to her. And she's saying, well, we worship here and you worship there in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Lady, the day is coming when we will worship neither here nor in Jerusalem. Right? So the next prophetic word about the temple and about the priesthood from Jesus that comes out is that it's at an end. When you say, when, when a Jew says, we will no longer worship in Jerusalem, that means no more temple. That's where the temple is. They have one temple. It's in Jerusalem. If we're not going to worship in Jerusalem anymore, there's no more temple, there's no more priesthood, there's no more sacrifice. That's what Jesus is telling her. This is the end of the Old Testament, right? We're not going to worship here or in Jerusalem. And he says, he goes on to say, the Father, 
What does he go? He goes on to say, the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers, right? And this is what, this is what Malachi is after and where the priesthood have failed. It's the true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's not happening because it would be expressed in giving their first and their best of their hearts and their lives. And they, and they weren't. And so Jesus says that the, that the time is coming when we will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking such to worship him. Been seeking it since the end of the Old Testament. Been forever. God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The temple and the sacrifices pass away. In fact, to this very day, they have passed away. There is no temple. There is no priesthood. There are no sacrifices. And I believe that's the way God wants it. So at the heart of this disputation, at the heart of this whole dialogue that God is having, is that his own people are despising his name. And his statement is that my name is great, my name will be great, in all the earth. God's people are offering him his, their leftovers. Their worship is literally lame and weak. Their heart is not entirely in it. It has cost them nothing. They do not believe their God is great. How can you believe your God is great? And to give him lame, worthless, leftover worship. Their hearts should be overflowing with a sincere worship and a worthy sacrifice if their hearts were captivated with the greatness of their God. The God who said, I have loved you and I have chosen you and I have made you my own. I have called you by name. Here at the end of the Old Testament, though, God declares a glorious future, a prophetic statement of of this coming spiritual worship that we're talking about. If you look in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, that is from the far east to the far west, right? As far as it comes up over the circle of the earth on that side and goes down the circle of the earth on that side, that's the whole earth. That encompasses everything. Wherever you're standing, if you say from the east to the west, you're going you're to catch it all. And he's saying, right, this is he's looking forward because it is not the case now. He is looking at the failure of the priesthood and saying, for from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name will be great among the nations. And it is because we're here in another nation halfway around the globe from him, and his name is great in our midst. And he says and declares that it shall be so. In verse 14, going forward, he says, not only cursed be the cheat, but at the end of that one, he says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared, revered among the nations. He says, I'm a great king. He's not saying, hey, among all the kings, I'm, I'm a good one, I'm a big one. He's saying, no, I am the king over all kings. Right, other texts make that clear. When he says, I am a great king, I am the king over all kings, in my name will be honored. If you're going to honor the government and pay your taxes and obey its laws and 
do those things for your earthly, I am a great king. I am the king. I am Lord over all the earth. Will you not revere my name? See, the great burden of this whole convert, this disputation, the great, is the great burden of God's honor. That he would be honored, first and foremost, in the hearts of his people and in the heart of their worship. But ultimately, as the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth, from the rising to the setting of the sun, the great burden is about God's honor. And the concern over lame worship that dishonors him. John Piper says, The supreme goal of history, of God in history from beginning to end, is the manifestation of his great glory. Accordingly, our duty is to bring our thoughts, our affections, our actions into line with this goal. It should become our goal. To join God in this goal is called glorifying God. right? Giving him the honor that he is due. It's the heart of worship magnifying God and giving him the honor that he is due. At the heart of worship is the greatness of God. Our hearts revering him, treating him as holy, treating him as worthy, treating him as glorious, treating him as he deserves. Lame worship is the result of unbelief. It's the result of not seeing, not believing in the greatness of God and His love. And as low as that is, is the lamer our worship is. The greater He is, the greater our salvation is, the greater and the more sincere and rich will our worship be. People ask, why God, may ask, we, why is God so angry about this? In verse 8, it says they, they turned aside. When, you, when he tells about the covenant with Levi, it says that true instruction is in his mouth. And, and he turned many from iniquity to rightness. And that, this is the role of the priest, to turn them from their sin to righteousness and, and all of this. And he says that, that what you have done, verse 8, is you've turned aside and you're turning other people aside. You're leading other people astray, causing them to stumble. And at the heart of it, he says, is you've corrupted the covenant. They're not just disobedient and unworthy. But they have been illegal, illegally offering blind and lame sacrifices. And this isn't just disobedience. This is blasphemous. Right? This is actually blasphemy against God and against the Savior. It corrupts the covenant. The covenant is the way that it is. The requirement for the animals being pure and unblemished the way they are, they're, they're like that for a reason. And the reason is they point to something else. They're a placeholder for something else. The truth is, according to Hebrews 10.4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These bulls and goats that they're sacrificing, pure or not, aren't taking away any sin. They're a placeholder. Teaching us that God will accept a substitute 
who would die in our place and shed its blood to cover our sin, and he would graciously accept that sacrifice and forgive us our sin. So when we believe, we have faith and repent and, and, and offer that sacrifice, God forgives us. It's a placeholder teaching Israel to trust in God's mercy, in, in a, accepting a sacrifice, a substitute for us to cover our sin. But here's the thing, the sacrifice of perfect animals is holding the place for Jesus, right? It typified the coming perfect sacrifice, right? It was a picture. It pointed to the coming sacrifice that actually would cover all of our sins that aren't getting covered by the blood of bulls and goats. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20 says this, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, the lamb of God, without blemish, without spot, the perfect sacrifice, the only sacrifice that would be acceptable to God and right enough, righteous enough, unblemished enough to take our place and cover our sin. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, so He's foreknown before the foundation of the world. He's manifest in these last times. He's foreknown, and so these sacrifices are put into place. Before the foundation of the world, when these sacrifices are put into place, God puts them in place to hold the place of Jesus until he comes. And so the law, the covenant, is written in a way, and they're expected to offer those kind of sacrifices for a reason. They're a picture and a type of Christ. What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about God himself when we offer lame sacrifices, lame worship? So heartless, faithless, impure sacrifices, they cost nothing, are spiritually catastrophic to the nation. This is why in verse 10 he says, just stop. I wish somebody would, I wish there was one out there who would just close the doors and stop because they're worthless. They actually violate and misrepresent the covenant and destroy what I am showing you, leading you into. The priests were not only defying God's law, they were corrupting the covenant. They were dishonoring his name and misrepresenting Christ. See, God's concern in the pure sacrifice is his concern for the honor of our beautiful Savior. His concern for the honor of Jesus Christ. Concern for the honor of the unblemished Son of God. And he says, how dare you misrepresent him like that? How dare you put in his place that which is polluted and lame? His concern for the honor of his own name and the name of his son who sheds his precious blood in our place, who pays for our debt, who atones for our sins to save us. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12, it says this, when Christ appeared as a high priest, so there's a perfect high priest coming and that high priest is going to offer a perfect sacrifice. And that's why it was the beginning of the end for them. 
because Christ is coming. And when, the, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is to say, you were offering these sacrifices first in the tabernacle and then in the temple, but just like the sacrifices were pointing to something greater, that temple where God's presence was said to abide is nothing but a picture of heaven itself and the presence of God itself. And it says that Jesus, when he shows up, he passes through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. It is <clears throat> not of this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy places that is in to the presence of God in his glory. Jesus bears as our high priest his own perfect blood and sacrifice into the holy of holies, which is God's presence, securing, he says, by means of his own blood, our eternal redemption. God's concern for the purity of sacrifice in the heart of Israel's worship is ultimately about the honor of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, it still is. As far as we understand that sacrifice, as far as we understand him and what God has done, so far is the sincerity and the weightiness and the worthiness of our worship as we can see Christ in all of his unblemished, pure, perfect glory for us. So have you put your faith in Jesus? He is the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. He's the only one who could cover your sin. And the scripture says he died on the cross to be able to offer to us forgiveness. He did, he says, when you believe in him, that is to believe that what he did, he did for you. Do you trust his perfect once and for all sacrifice to make you acceptable to God every day? Right, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect unblemished sacrifice. His, his sacrifice was purchasing a full, complete redemption that we stand righteous in his righteousness every day because his sacrifice was perfect. And we stand in his unblemished righteousness before God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you did not leave us in our sin and as you found us. And in all of our failures and the failure of the priesthood, thank you for the perfect high priest. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or spot. Thank you for the eternal redemption purchased for us in him. Father, help us to put our faith and our trust in him fully and completely for our salvation and to stand in our substitute's righteousness moment by moment and day by day, perfectly accepted. The ironic blessing said in truth and power over your people. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.